Well, it's been my privilege to be here this weekend with you guys and uh, to share what God keeps teaching us as we uh, learn and grow. And we had a great time yesterday just thinking about this whole concept of fear. What, what do you think of when you hear the word fear? An event that happened in your life, maybe? Um, an event that maybe you're afraid will happen in your life that hasn't happened yet? I think of um, some specific things. I remember the time I was skiing at Mammoth in California, and the people I was skiing with were really good skiers, and I wasn't. But somehow they talked me into getting on this chairlift that took us to the top of the cornice. Very top of the mountain on the cornice, what would happen is the wind would blow and it'd kind of blow these drifts over the top of the cornice. And so the only way to get down was you kind of had to go off the cliff and then land and ski. And so the guy that was a friend of mine in front of me, he just took off, went over the edge, did a couple daffies, landed, and then skied the rest of the way down. I found this little ridge that people had kind of carved into the snow, and I kind of slid down over the edge, and then I went down about a little bit, and then I went down a little bit, and I stopped, and, and I'm maybe a third of the way down this mountain, and all of a sudden I hear noise, and I look behind me, and the guy up behind me had fallen, and both of his skis go flying by me, then he goes sliding all the rest of the way down the hill. And I'm standing there on the side with my edges in, and it's one of the most incredible times where I really thought I was going to pee my pants. <laughs> I was so scared, and I didn't know how I'm going to get down. Ever had that feeling? You're so scared, you don't know what to do, you don't see any way to get past or through this thing that you fear. So I just went 10 feet at a time, like this, all the way down, and I finally got down. But fear can come from places we're not expecting, and it can grip us in incredible ways. On the flip side of fear, what often we experience is not fear itself, but we fear anxiety. What do you get anxious about? What keeps you awake at night? What do you find yourself worrying about? See, all of that's wrapped up in, in fear. And, and right now, we live in such uncertain times. You know, between the fear, health fears that you might have, political fears, financial fears, and, and on and on it goes. There's no shortage of opportunities for us to fear right now. Every year, 40 million American adults, that's 18% of the population, experience more extreme anxiety. And it's just a big issue in our culture. 30.5 million Americans tank, take tranquilizers to help them with anxiety. Another 37 million Americans take antidepressants. And I'm not saying that's bad to do. I'm just showing you there's this reality that there's a lot of fear going around and a lot of people trying to deal with it. It's a reality in all of our lives. I'm the little gal that cuts my hair at, at sports clips. I got into a conversation with her and, and um, just asked her some more personal questions and, and um, she just shared all the different medications she's on and 
all this fear that's in her life. And she says, you know, I don't know one of my friends who's not on anti-anxiety medication. She said, I can't think of one friend. See, it's a big issue. It's a big deal. Fear of this uncertainty, of insecurity, the sense of this loss of control, that I don't have control over things. And any sense of control that I think I have is probably just an illusion anyway. Anxiety, it's a response to fear. And behind all anxiety is fear. And behind much of ungodly fear we saw yesterday is unbelief. We looked at three different kinds of fear. There's natural fear, an unpleasant, often strong emotion caused by the anticipation of some kind of danger. Something's going to happen and I'm fearful. There's natural fear. The fear that I experienced standing on the side of Cornus was legitimate fear. That wasn't made up, okay? But there's also ungodly fear. There's the fear that grips us as a result of our unbiblical thinking that's going to produce ungodly actions in our life. And that's the fear that most of us deal with that keeps us up at night. And that fear usually falls into the form of either the fear of rejection, the the fear of failure that I'm not going to measure up, the, the fear of something that might happen in the future, the fear of pain or suffering that may be in my life and may never go away or may come in my life. But then there's also a godly fear. Webster defines this fear as a feeling of deep respect, love, and awe. It's the response of awe and respect given to a holy, righteous God that's a result of a right view of God. Yesterday, we looked at Mark 4.35. I want us to take another glimpse at that for those of you that weren't here because it gives us a good picture of the different kinds of fear here. In Mark 4, we read in verse 35 and following where Jesus is going to calm the storm. It says this, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And he awoke rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now you'd think, you know, there is a sense here they're on the sea in the Sea of Galilee, which is known to sometimes have windstorms that come up on a moment's notice. Not unlike Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan is more dangerous to sail on than the ocean is because winds will come up out of nowhere and the winds and the waves that are produced from that are more dangerous than the swell of the ocean. They'll just beat on the side of a boat and beat it to pieces. So it would seem that that would be a legitimate fear to be in a boat and having those kind of waves that are filling the boat with water. But Jesus, see, look at what he said. He said, why are you so afraid? Because they lost sight of who was with them. 
and because who was with them should, should take away any natural fear that's there. So because of that, then they're just left with ungodly fear, which is a lack of trust. Because see, he connects it to their faith. <clears throat> says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Says, don't you realize who I am and what's going on here? So they, had, they were afraid. And then they were filled with great fear. Why? And that's a different word for fear, by the way. Totally different word for fear. They were filled with great fear, incredible fear. This is that awe fear that Webster talked about. Because they said, Does even who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? Their ungodly fear of just their surroundings and, and the physical stuff that was happening around them turned into a godly fear when they realized Jesus has power over the wind and the sea. Wow. Wow. See, that's different than I'm scared. It's a totally different fear. How we deal with fear and anxiety is determined by our view of God. So we saw yesterday the solution to fear is faith. Trusting God with all areas of your life. We're going to see today that the ultimate solution to fear is fear. Okay? There's an absence of a good theology today in our culture, an understanding of, of who God is. Our cultural Christianity has us pursuing a God that we want rather than a God who really is. See, we want a God who makes us comfortable. We want to hear about relationships and practical things that our God fixes. We want, we want Him to fix our life. We want Him to fix our spouse. We want Him to fix our kids. We want Him to fix the car. We kind of approach God, I look at it as like a divine candy machine where I go up and I, and I put in a dollar's worth of church attendance. Then I put in a dollar's worth of being involved in a small group, I put a dollar's worth in of serving, and maybe even I put a dollar in the offering plate. And then because of that, I should be able to walk up to the divine candy machine and pull the knob and get whatever it is I think I need today from God. And we treat him as a divine candy machine. Or we view him as the great Santa Claus in the sky, where once a year we sit on his lap and he goes, have you been good this year? And you look around and go, I've been better than these guys. Okay, what would you like me to give you this year? Now, I know that sounds pretty superficial, but I think we can drift into that in a subtle way that doesn't seem quite that blatant, but still we have this view of God that he's there to give us something that we want. And we don't want a holy God who's going to pour his wrath out on sin. And I'm just concerned there's no fear of God today in our culture. And that easily affects us and influences how we even think about God. 
We're, we're destroying God's creation of male and female today and dismantling his design for marriage and the family. We celebrate evil and cancel what is good. We as a culture are worshiping the creation rather than the creator. There is no fear of God today around us. But you guys, it's not new. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 36. An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. For in his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. Wow, does that describe our culture? The words of his mouth are wicked and deceitful. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. Even on his bed, he plots evil. He commits himself to a sinful course and does not reject what is wrong. Jeremiah said it this way, Jeremiah 5, announce this to the house of Jacob and proclaim it to Judah. Hear this, you foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear, should you not fear me, declares the Lord? Should you not tremble in my presence? I made a sand, the sand, a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier it cannot cross. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. But these people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They've turned aside and gone away. They do not say to themselves, let us fear the Lord our God, who gives autumn and spring rains in season, who assures us of the regular weeks of harvest. Paul says it this way in Romans 3. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. This doesn't sound like a very good situation, does it? Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. See, because we don't understand the true character of God, we lose sight of who he really is, and we create the God we want rather than the God who is. We don't understand the character of God, and we don't respond to him as a holy God. And we don't turn to him then as the source of life. So we live independent of God, trusting in our own resources. So you know what happens? We become anxious and fearful. Anxiety and anger are like the warning lights on the dashboard of our lives. Something is wrong under the hood. I was golfing with a friend of mine, and I'm not that good a golfer. As a matter of fact, a lot of people wouldn't call what I do golf. I just chase the ball everywhere. I always come back with more balls than I start with because I'm out in places where nobody else goes to look for their balls, looking for my ball. I'm playing the round of my life. I'm on hole 12 and I'm only five over. This is the round of my life. My friend's telephone rings in the golf cart. It's his wife. She says, hi, um, Janet, who's my wife, is trying to get a hold of Randy. I had my phone shut off like you should have when you're on the golf course. So I, take, I answer the phone. She's clear on the other side of town and the car isn't running. I said, well, she says, I think maybe the battery's bad. I go, why? Because it, well, I start the car, it just quit and I start it up and then it runs for a little while and then it quits. And then I start it up again and it runs for a little while and then it quits. And then something smells really bad and we're seeing white puffs of smoke come from underneath 
the, the hood and said, is like any of the warning lights on on the dash? Oh, yeah, they're all on. <laughs> and so you're driving the car because? Well, the radiator got a hole in it. All the water went out, and she actually burned up the motor in the car. Warning lights. Do you know what they're there for? To say, warning. Something's not right here. Stop and take a look under the hood. Anger and anxiety, those warning lights that say, stop, take a look under the hood. There's something going on here. And what we've done, what's going on under the hood is we have God amnesia. We've forgotten who God is. That's why there's anger and anxiety in our lives. And we need to open the hood and get a, a fresh glimpse of who God is. Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 6. I want us to briefly look at this passage of Scripture today and see and get a fresh glimpse of who God is because that's what I think we need. We need a, 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 a true glimpse of who God is and what He's really like. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died, stop right there. Okay, so year King Uzziah died. What's going on here? Well, there had been, there's a time of chaos and moral decadence that had been going on. And there was this unstable political times that they were in the middle of. Judah and Israel were fighting with each other. King Amaziah, who was Uzziah's father, had failed to rebuild the temple. In 2 Kings, we find Amaziah's pride had gotten the best of him, and eventually his own official conspired against him and assassinated him. I mean, it's bad politically. All hell is literally breaking loose, okay? Then King Uzziah, also called Azariah, King Uzziah comes on the scene, and he becomes this big influence, and he reigned for 52 years. And he was primarily successful in everything that he did. In 2 Chronicles 26, you read that Uzziah sought God during the days who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. 52 years of success because he feared God and was pursuing God. He turned Jerusalem into a fortified city and brought security. I was just there last month. And we were looking at the walls and all the years that they've been torn down and rebuilt and the layers of walls and we went underground and we're looking at the, some of the original pieces of the wall that was built to fortify the city. And you look at the wall and you go, how in the world can anybody ever get over that wall? Well, that was the point. That's why you built the wall, right? Well, he had turned Jerusalem into this fortified city that was now safe. They developed commerce and agriculture around there, and they had unequaled popularity since the time of Solomon. Things are going good. Their 401ks never look better, okay? There was this rich merchant class that had built these elaborate houses, and there was peace with Israel. The problem is this produced a false sense of security and they lost their sense of a need for God. You know, can't that happen in our lives too? When everything's going good, who needs God? Things are going the way I want. I don't think about any need for God. Well, guess what happened to Uzziah? Verse 8 tells, it tells us he became very powerful 
And then he became very prideful. And that led to his downfall. God gave him terminal leprosy, something totally out of his control that immediately dethroned him. Why is all that important? Why is this all important? Well, see, don't we tend to do that too? We want someone to provide security for us. We turn to our possessions. We turn to our government. We turn to something to provide security and a sense of life for us. When King Uzziah died, everyone felt this panic. Oh no, Uzziah's died. Now what's going to happen? Their earthly king, their assurance of security was gone. I don't want to meddle, but man, haven't we slipped into some of that today? Uzziah had kept things from falling apart. He died. Panic sets in. When we're placing our security and pursuit of life in anything other than God, which really becomes a false God, the threat of it being taken away is devastating. If I'm to understand my role and my identity in God's kingdom, it starts by thinking rightly about the king of the kingdom. When things aren't going well or confusing, we need to get refocused. We need a fresh vision of who to turn to and see what happens here. In the middle of their panic, Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. See, in in the year that King Uzziah died, guess who showed up? The real king. He said, I saw him, and the the train of his robe filled the temple. Get the picture, he's in the temple. The train of his robe was so big that it filled the whole temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Said in the middle of this, says, I saw the Lord. And you know what his response is? Wow, look at this. His, throat, his, his, his thing just filled the whole temple, his robe did. In the year that we lost our human king, I saw the real king. And there's these seraphim there, which were these angles, and they had angels, and they had three pair of wings. With two of them, they covered their eyes because they couldn't even look on the holiness of God. They couldn't even look at him. They covered their eyes because of the awesomeness of God's glory. Remember when Moses asked to see God and God passed by? What did Moses see? He didn't get to see God. He saw the afterglow of God because no one can look in God and live. They're covering their eyes. Two, two of their wings are cover their eyes. With two of their feet, they cover, or two of their wings, they cover their feet. And that was to show respect. They can't look on God because he's so holy. And because of his holiness and out of respect for him, they're covering their feet. And then with the other two, they fly around and they hover around the throne of God. Now, what's the purpose of these seraphim? Well, you know what they do? They just celebrate the power and holiness of Jehovah. And they're flying around, and all they do for all eternity is they fly around, they say this, holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. 
Why that? Well, that's because that's what the song says, right? Repetition adds emphasis in the Scripture. Whenever you see something that repeats like that, it's really, it's like God saying, hey, you got this? Get attention here. This is really, really important. Holy, holy, holy. Notice they aren't flying around saying grace, grace, grace. Love, love, love. No, holy, holy, holy. Holiness is the characteristic that sets God apart from all of the rest of his creation. And the fact that God is holy should control the way we think and the way we live. See, Isaiah saw that God is much bigger than himself. Look at verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Wow. Whenever there's a smoke in the Scripture, it always is, is somehow referring to God as a consuming fire, and nothing is to be taken lightly around him. Glory and power are always associated with God's holiness. This is what sets him apart. In the, in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, only the priests were allowed to go in there certain times of the year, and they had to totally prepare themselves to go in. And if something that they didn't do something right, and they didn't meet God's standard, guess what happened to them? Smashed right there on the spot. Well, nobody could go in to get them. So you know what they did? They had a rope wrapped around his foot and a bell on his, on his, on his shoe. And as long as he's moving around in the Holy of Holies, they can hear the bell ringing. But guess what? No bell? He's probably dead. How are we going to get him out of here? That's what the rope was for. They could drag him out and not have to go in and face the potential annihilation of being in front of a holy God. That's a far cry from a Santa Claus God, isn't it? See, we lost sight of the holiness of God. We need a, a glimpse of this. There's no fear of God today. What if we experienced what the men of Bathshemus did, the Philistines who had stolen the ark? They looked into the ark, and you know what happened? Bam, 70 of them died. They said, who's able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Remember the guys that were carrying the ark? They're carrying it. No one's to touch it. You know, there's, there's these loops on it, and they put poles through it, and they hold it. So they, nobody's to touch the ark because that symbolizes the presence of God. And the ark started to slip, so you know what they did? They tried to grab it, so it went slip. And as soon as they touched the ark, what happened? God squashed them. What about number 16? Korah and his guys decided to rebel against Moses. And they did unholy worship. And God separated them out. And 250 of them and their family members and all their goods were swallowed up in the ground. The ground opened up and swallowed them and then covered right up over them. 250 died. The next day, everybody starts complaining about it. So God sent a plague, and 14,700 people died before Moses and Aaron atoned for them and stopped the plague. Let's jump into the New Testament. 
Ananias and Sapphira come and they, they, everybody's giving land and property to the church. And, so it can, and they lied about it so they made themselves look better than they really were. And you know what happened to both of them? They both died. I always like to preach that passage just before I take the offering. <laughs> Do you think the people that experienced these things thought God was a divine candy machine? Do you think they had this wow, respect for the awesomeness and the holiness of God? See, we've lost that today. You know, Jesus is just all right with me. You know, try God. He's the real thing. We, we, we have such a small view of God and we've lost sight of the holiness of the creator God who we, we read, he put the sand there to stop the water in the ocean. Which, by the way, he created both of those. A glimpse of God's holiness should remind us of who God really is. And you know what our response should be? Wow. So, Isaiah got this glimpse of God's holiness. And he saw it. So you know what happened? He's on Caleb the next day telling everybody about this really cool experience he had. And wow, you guys aren't going to believe this really. No, you know what he did? Look at verse 5. And he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know what he's saying? He went from wow to woe. A true glimpse of God first helps us see his holiness, but the second thing it does is it helps us see the lack of holiness in our own lives. We see ourselves for who we really are. And Isaiah said, I am ruined my lips are unclean. He's a prophet. What do prophets do? They speak. What's the vehicle they speak through? Their lips and their mouth, and his very lips and mouth as a prophet are unclean. Wow. I've seen the Lord. Whoa. So a glimpse of God gives us a view of ourselves too, not just a true glimpse of God, of who he is. It reminds us who we are. And if we stopped right there, we'd be in a mess, wouldn't we? But look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs and taken it from the fire of the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. What happens here? Isaiah gets a true glimpse of God and he sees who God really is. Then that gives him a glimpse of himself and he sees who he really is and he realizes, I'm, I'm a mess, man. And there's nothing I can do about it. I can't make myself holy. And so God sent one of the seraphim to cleanse him. God in his grace provided for him what he could not provide for himself. Just like God provides for you and me what we can't provide for ourselves. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. What does a dead man need? Life, right? 
Can a dead man give himself life? God here gives Isaiah what he couldn't provide for himself as an incredibly beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us in giving us what we can't do for ourselves. That's why we need grace. And a sin is atoned for. See, that's the humility that comes from seeing God for who he really is. It reminds us that we're inadequate, that we're helpless. He had a glimpse of the king, the Lord of hosts, and it quickly revealed to Isaiah what he's like in contrast to the holy God. Look at what Tozer said. I have this on the screen for you. Until we have seen ourselves as God sees us, we are not likely to be much disturbed over the conditions around us as long as they do not get so far out of hand as to threaten our comfortable way of life. We have learned to live with unholiness and have come to look upon it as the naturally expected thing. See, a true glimpse of God reminds us of our need of His grace. We desperately need His grace. God provided for Isaiah what He could not provide for Himself. The holy God provided what was needed to correct the problem of our sin, which separates us from Him. So this holy God, who is so above us, this creator God, who's so powerful that He blew the worlds into existence with His breath, this God who is holy, 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 loves you, has chosen you, and knows your name. This holy God created you to be in a relationship with him, and he makes you holy so that you can be in that relationship with him. I should just be so overwhelmed by the love of a holy God who has every right to zap me. The gospel tells me this, I deserve to burn in hell, and anything less than that's a pretty good day. I deserve the wrath of God, but guess what? Instead, the gospel tells me I've been given mercy and grace. I'm not given what I do deserve, and instead I'm given what I don't deserve. We will never understand the riches of God's grace until we understand the depth of our sin. Well, a true glimpse of God should produce a humble servant. Look at verse 8. Then, I'll go on 7. Um... Verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Glimpse of God, true glimpse of God gives us a view of who he is and his holiness. It also gives us a true glimpse of ourself. It gives us a glimpse of our need of his grace. And in that humility, we go, here I am, God, use me however you want to use me. I am yours. You're the king. I'm your servant. God, here I am, use me. And see, that fear of God has great benefits. Proverbs 15.3 says, it's the fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. A, a fear of the Lord helps us avoid sin. I think after Ananias and Sapphira... The people who gave gifts were pretty honest about how much they gave because they had that memory of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. The fear of the Lord, see, the fear of the Lord helps us to avoid sin. Proverbs 8.13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, says the Lord. 
Exodus 20, Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Not only does it keep us from sinning, but it also, on the other hand, leads us to life. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Proverbs 22.4, humility and the fear of the Lord bring wealth and honor and life. But not only that, it draws us in relationship to him. Isaiah 41 says, so do not fear for I am with you, see? Do, do not anxiously look about you, I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So, see, here's the thing. God's God, and I'm not. See, when we start questioning God, when we start not trusting God, when we start questioning what he's doing and why, what we do is we get in a role reversal with God. Here's God. I place myself over God, and I start determining what God should and should not be doing, how he should react, what he should do when. glimpse of God holiness reminds us who we, he is, reminds us who we are, it reminds us of our need of grace, and it should produce a humble heart. The solution to ungodly fear is fear. The right kind of fear, the fear of a holy God. Now, a true glimpse of God requires a look at the whole character of God. I want to put a verse up here for us. And... Uh, I think I got it there. Do I have a verse? Yeah. I want us to stand and read this verse together. I can read it to you, but there's just power when we read it ourselves and when we hear it. Um, this is one way we encourage each other, is even speaking Scripture to each other, okay? So we're going to do that together. Let's read this out loud together. Okay, here we go. Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the council of His and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by him who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are steadfast forever and ever, done in faithfulness and righteousness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. Amen. Amen. Isn't that powerful? You can be seated. Now, I want to wrap up with this. Unfortunately, see, I didn't know what time we were supposed to close, so I'm just going to keep going until we're done. <laughs> You've got to keep the character of God in balance. We've hit hard the holiness of God but I have to understand that the holiness of God is part of him, but also is the love and grace of God. 
It's not an either or, it's a both and. We tend to err over here and only want to look at the love and grace of God. We don't want to look at the holiness of God. If I get stuck over here in just the love of grace of God and I lose sight of the holiness of God, I'm going to start swapping roles with God again and think I can be in a position to tell him what he's supposed to do. If over here all I do is I look at the holiness of God, I can think God is this distant God that's out there who really doesn't know and really doesn't care about anything going on in my life. We've got to keep the character of God in balance. I love 1 John 4.18 says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Where do you find perfect love? Well, you thought you found it in the person you married. Whoa, what a surprise that turned out to be, huh? Nobody can perfectly love you. They can't because they're imperfect people. Imperfect people can't perfectly love you. There's only one who can perfectly love you. Only one. Perfect love casts out fear. Awe, one author said this, this is great, awe does not drive us from God. We know that this majestic one whose being and glory are immense and awe-inspiring has chosen to love us and divide us into the most intimate of relationships with him. Somehow we need to keep in balance our sense of the tender love of God unveiled in Jesus and the blinding, overpowering holiness and power that are God's by his very nature. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And you know what's interesting? The loving kindness and steadfast love of God is referred to more throughout scriptures than the holiness and fear of God is. But I gotta have both. See, this God who is holy, holy, holy wants you to call him daddy. Abba, father. Daddy. That's how much he loves you. That's the kind of relationship he wants to have with you. That's how close and personal he wants to be with you. The solution to fear is faith. And real faith is based on a right fear of God. I want to end with a story. Max Lucado shares this. Two-year-old Sarah sits on my lap. We're watching a comedy on television about a guy who has a mouse in his room. He's asleep. He opens one eye and finds himself peering into the face of the rodent. The camera gets eye level with the mouse, and suddenly the screen is filled with two eyes, whiskers, and a twitching nose. I laugh, but Sarah panics. She turns away from the screen and buries her face in my shoulder. Her arms encircle my neck and clamp like a vice. Her little body grows rigid. She thinks the mouse is going to get her. It's okay, Sarah, I assure her. She won't let go. It's only a picture, Sarah. She peers up at me with one eye, then burrows her nose back into my shirt. Mouse, get me, she whispers. There's nothing to be afraid of, I say. It's only a pretend mouse. I speak with confidence because I am confident. There's really nothing to fear, I know. I've seen big mice on picture screens before. I know they go away. Sarah doesn't. Two-year-olds don't understand the concept of television. 
as far as she knows, the rodent on the screen is about to bound out of that box and gobble her up. As far as she knows, the mouse will be there every time she comes into this room. As far as she knows, televisions are, set, are nothing more than a glass cage that house big giant mouse. There is reason to be afraid, so she's afraid. But with time, I convince her. Sarah has gone from white-faced fear to peaceful chuckles in moments. Why? Because her father spoke and she believed. Would that we would do the same. Got any giant mice on your screen? Hmm. Wow. Got any fears that won't go away? Got any whiskered monsters staring at you? I wish the fears were just television images. They aren't. They lurk in hospital rooms and funeral homes. They stare at us from divorce papers and eviction notices. They glare through the eyes of cruel parents or an abusive mate. And we like Sarah, get frightened. But we, unlike Sarah, don't know where to turn. We, why did Sarah turn to her dad for comfort? Simple. She knows me. And because she knows me, she trusts me. Instinctively, she is aware that I know more than she does. So when I tell her not to worry, she doesn't worry. Instinctively, we should know that God knows more than we do. Common sense would tell us that he isn't afraid of the mice that roar in our world. He's been there before. He knows how these shows end. He knows that the worst fear that foe can throw is only a mirage. And he wants us to listen to his voice and trust him as Sarah trusted me. There are times when mice roar there are times when you need a strong pair of arms. You need to know that the arms of God are there. Would you join me in prayer? God, thank you for your arms of love. A holy, righteous God who is holy, holy, holy wraps your arms around us in love. And we can sit on your lap and know we're safe regardless of what comes around us because of who you are and the promises that you've made to us, and the fact that you have the power and that you're a sovereign God because you know, you care, and you are in control. And so, God, we sit in your lap with confidence. Thank you. Amen.